even as you seek understanding, I think what makes us faithful is being able to like realize that our understanding and our conclusions can never make up for the mysteries and the wonder. And being able to hold a space for what we don't know is what makes us human. I guess keeps us away from our tendencies to like overly reduce things down and gives us this sense of like, now that I've understood it, I can conquer it and I can keep this and I can hold it and now I have power over it. But our wonder, it humbles us. What Happens In Between is all about the awkward middle phase of creation. You know, after you've taken your first steps, but before you get to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Join me, Athena, as I learn from artists, creators, and entrepreneurs about the tactical and emotional methods they use after the initial excitement of following your dreams meets the reality of following your dreams. Hi, welcome back to another episode of What Happens In Between. Today, we have Rose J. Percy, who is a seminarian, poet, and host of the podcast, Dear Soft Black Woman. Rose is also the co-founder of CUNY, which is a nonprofit initiative co-creating sacred space for disabled, BIPOC, queer BIPOC, and Black Indigenous women of color. Hi, Rose. Hello, Athena. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I forgot my favorite of your credits, which is uh, like semi-bookstagrammer, like a literature, a grammar. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I read a lot and I love sharing with people what I'm reading. And my account is not so bookstagram focused because Mm -hmm. like, it's a whole world. You're right. Well, you know, I I dabble. (laughs) Uh Look, you've added to my reading list and that's all it takes for me. (laughs) That makes me so happy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I'm really excited to chat today. I think this is going to be a real juicy episode. (laughs) (laughs) I always love to start when I have a Caribbean guest. I always love to start there. Yes. So as a Haitian American woman, I'm really interested in how you feel like that hybridity. So you were born in Haiti, but mm-hmm. grew up in the U.S. and mm-hmm. presumably had Haitian parents, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm so interested in how that delightful hybrid impacted your ability to make community. Mm. Ooh. <laughs> Thank you for this question. It is a very good question. And it's also like so deeply thought provoking. Yeah, I'm actually like taking a class right now in seminary on sociology of immigration and religion. Mm. And it's giving me language for things I did not know how to describe before. And like language for the experience of like, number one, like blackness has a number of different ways of expressing itself around the world. And Haitian Blackness is a very particular, you know, space that, a particular, like, ethnic story. But coming to the U.S. from Haiti and growing up in the States means growing up under a different culture of Blackness and a different mm-hmm. assimilation story as a Black immigrant where you are negotiating, not just between, like, the ethnic Haitian Blackness, but U.S.-based Black culture And then there are the rules of like 
social politics that play out and helping you like just trying to figure out how to navigate school system and things like that. And one of the things I remember my parents used to impress upon me and like, this is not to fault them because their whole impetus was just like survival. We need you to survive. We need you to prosper. We need you to make it. And so do your best not to be like the Black Americans because, you know, even (laughs) international, you know, perception of Blackness and what Blackness is in America has been so skewed in the eyes of Black immigrants. And so like for me growing up, I just thought all I had to do is distinguish myself. And the further and further away I got from thinking that way and realizing, you know, there's nothing wrong with Black people. Um, in fact, this idea that like we have to prove ourselves is just like so rooted in like anti-Blackness. Mm. But to get back to your question, like the navigating community part, I mean, like there's something wonderful about having these hybrid cultural experiences. And one, it's like, it prevents you from viewing the world in this like black and white single story narrative where like this set of people are always right. These set of people are always wrong. When you can kind of like sort of understand and empathize and see things, you know, through the lens of different, like we can point, you can pull on different parts of your identity to understand different things. It's beautiful. And I think there are spaces that celebrate that what you bring to the table and that diversity and there are spaces that don't and unfortunately I spent a lot of my life in spaces where community told me to become smaller and become less of myself or to celebrate only some parts of my identity and hide others and so as I come into like this season of my life like I'm not covering anything up like I'm Haitian I'm a Haitian (laughs) you know as someone who's grown up in Haiti their entire lives, like nothing has changed because I've moved to the States. I have access to other expressions of being, yes, but does not take away my Haitianness. I am Black and I understand and have lived in the States in a way that helps me understand and know the experience of Black people in the States. And I've studied history. And so I am just as Black as someone who has been born here. And so for me, navigating community is about navigating abundance and scarcity Mm. (laughs) you know Mm. coming to into spaces where there's scarcity like you often feel like you do have to hide parts of who you are and you cannot be your full self but when you're in spaces of abundance like you're no longer just trying to like negotiate through these tensions like the tensions like will always be there but in the spaces where you feel celebrated like I don't know it's just different it's just a different thing and I look forward to I guess navigating my 30s and 40s now and you know even older in like full celebration of who I am Woo! I heard you <laughs> <laughs> dang I heard you <laughs> yeah that was such a rich answer I'm almost like I'm just wondering even which pieces I want to like mm. dig into yeah first off thank you for saying that there is that like diasporic cultural perception of mm. American Black mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people um, that is like negative. And it's like, it's this weird, weird is not the word, but it's a very subtle mm. <laughs> like form of anti-Blackness of like creating divisions in a space or to a group of people that you're also trying to make a monolith that I have found just like personally in my experience has been such a mind boggling thing to move through 
where it's like, so in my experience, I personally, like, I felt like I didn't have to reckon with my blackness until I Mm. went to college, to university. Mm. And at university, it was suddenly very clear that everybody had some understanding of what it is to be black that I had never, and everybody, I mean, like black people who were there as well as like non-black people all were like, well, so you're black. So this should be X, Y, Z. And I was like, whoa, hold on now. I thought I was Athena. (laughs) I thought I was Jamaican. Wait a second. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think so much of that was like, I personally felt like I was not prepared for, I guess, like the perception, the condensing of my identity to blackness. And in that way, I'm very grateful to my parents because my understanding of myself is self first, not like a physical identifier, but also (laughs) it put me in a weird place of like, well, no, I'm not X, I'm this. And it's like, you're both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're like made to negotiate. I also wonder like, who's asking these questions and like mm-hmm. often blackness is policed like in group and there's the white gaze and whiteness right. that wants to reduce people into categories. But then there's also this like within black community, there are many who like feel that blackness needs to be easily understood and perceivable to be black. Right. And doing so is like part of like trying to defend an understanding of ourselves and our dignity. And like that reasoning makes sense, except that we're trying to concretize something that began as a social category. In order to oppress us. (laughs) In order to oppress us. And there is something beautiful about like how we as Black people have taken something that was meant to oppress us and then destroy our humanity and like have created worlds within our Blackness. I forgot who said that. I want to say James Baldwin, but I'm not sure. But yeah, there's like, there are worlds within our Blackness. And to go into those worlds and then silo everyone into groups to diminish the beauty. Like I think, yeah, there's so much beauty in our blackness and I'm very cautious of like how I explain my Haitian identity and ethnic story. Like when I talk about being Haitian, Mm -hmm. I always say I'm Haitian and black with a capital B. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I need people to know that I'm trying to identify two parts of my story or at least two that I know of that are part of me. Yeah, that is so thorough is the word that's coming through. (laughs) That's really thorough. And I think that is also just like really beautiful to be explicit about there's more than one thing happening right now. Yes. Yes. I really love that. So in mentioning the reduction, right, the need to defend ourselves and to potentially present in a certain way because we know that we're being perceived under the white gaze or a particular lens, even intra and extra group, right? Mm -hmm. Or intergroup. I really love Dear Soft Black Woman. And specifically, I love that you made the distinction that it's Dear Mm -hmm. Soft Black Woman. I think Mm -hmm. you made a post and it was like, people keep calling it Soft Black Woman. It's not. I think... What's so beautiful to me about the distinction is that Dear Soft Black Woman is, it's speaking to your community, not speaking on behalf of. And I think that, well, sometimes it feels like a trick, right? Where it's like, 
if we're speaking on behalf of our community, it's not getting or we're getting distracted by the work of defending ourselves or Mm -hmm. trying to explain ourselves when in fact the real work is let's speak to each other about our experience, right? Like it's just so easy, I think, to accidentally fall into I'm explaining this to, let's just say, like I'm explaining Black womanhood to white people instead of like asking questions about what we want Black womanhood to be. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you for naming that. And the idea of like to explain to people like why like our lives matter constantly, like people outside who are looking in. Mm -hmm. Part of making the decision to call it Dear Soft Black Women was like, at first I really wanted to call it Soft Black Women Mm -hmm. or something like that. But for me, that kind of felt like I knew that people would like take it and be like, Rose, you are the soft black woman. It's you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm like, and I wanted to make it clear. I was like, no, I am just living one expression of what it means to be a soft black woman. And there are many out there. And I also wanted to, in some way, like capture what it felt like for me to first hear someone describe themselves as, as a soft black woman. And like in that moment, when the woman I heard like describe herself that way, she was just kind of like, I'm tired of being strong and I'm tired of having all this weight put on me. Like I need burdens lifted off of me. And she said, I am a soft black woman. As soon as she said it, I was like, it felt like she was calling my name, like calling me by a name I haven't heard like my whole life. But I knew that when she said it, it was something that I was answering to in my soul. And so I wanted to name the podcast um, Dear Soft Black Woman because I knew that there would be people be listening who did not yet know that that was something they could call themselves and respond to and receive as like for them. I mean, that's part of the reason why I always end in an affirmation because like no matter where the conversation goes and sometimes I have to like draw myself back to like realizing, oh yeah, that's right. We're trying to censor Black women in the space. Like let's bring ourselves back. I always want to end like remembering who I'm centering. So It's very important to me. Yeah, that's so beautiful. So after hearing this person call you by this name that you've had, but you didn't know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. what do you feel like was the biggest or most surprising shift that helped you lean into softness? Mm. I think in my work, I describe it as like a vocational shift. Mm. Um, like vocation is a very important word to me and like I'm in seminary so we talk about vocation all the time and you know there's a very spiritual connotation to that word because it really means like a call like something's calling out to you from outside or calling something within you calling out Um, so vocation there's that implication that there's something spiritual happening and for a very long time like I made my vocation about like trying to find dignity and worth in these roles that I was in at the time where I was always tired. I was always proving myself. And I also like did not really invest in my own health and well-being like as much as I wanted to. And when I did, like I felt guilty for doing so because I wasn't producing and I wasn't working hard enough or I came into understanding like limitations of my body and just like filled with like self-loathing and perfectionism, all this other stuff. And 
one of the things that changed my perspective about vocation was this book I read called Nobody Cries When We Die by Patrick Reyes. So he kind of talks about how vocation is often framed as like, you know, like the job you're going to do when you finish a degree or like what you do to get paid. But vocation is really like, what is God calling you to in this season? And anyone can answer that question, no matter their socioeconomic status, we all have a vocation and we have an answer to that question. And for him and his story, his vocation was to survive. And he felt a call to life and survival. And still for me, as I asked the question, like, what am I being called to in this season? The answer was rest. And so that's where I came to this understanding of rest is my vocation. And the minute I started thinking that way, I was like, hmm, like what comes to my mind when I think about how to center that and how to make that a priority for my life. And that's where I started writing a lot more and ended up just realizing that like to be a soft black woman for me meant to embrace rest as my vocation and to also help others find rest as their vocation. Wow. I did not know that definition of vocation. I actually thought it was like quite clinical. (laughs) Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people do. It makes sense because we have a culture of for like finding your purpose and we have tests that you can take like aptitude tests to help you figure out what your purpose is. And then you get matched with like, here's the perfect job for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then the world we live in, like that kind of idea is just so unstable. And so many of us are going through seasons of like reevaluating, like what our work-life balance is. And they're like, this job no longer fits me anymore, especially post like COVID coming into our lives and continuing to impact our lives. And they're thinking, oh no, like, what if I haven't found my purpose yet? And it's like, it's not that you haven't found your purpose. It's not that cut and dry. Like every new season is a chance to ask yourself, like, what is your vocation? So I recognize that my vocation can change. And at Mm -hmm. some point it changes and I just have to be open and constant listening to the voice of God telling me like, what am I being called to in this season? Yeah. Wow. So seminarian, seminary school, you've done a lot of school. Let me give you your flowers on that. You've done a lot of education. Thank you. Now, if that's not Caribbean. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah. Mm. I'd love to hear your story of faith inside of and outside of the context of organized religion. Hmm. All right. So for the next three hours, I'll just break it down for you. (laughs) No problem. Special double up. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that's such a heavy question, but I think like the first thing that I think of is like, I love the church. Even as I like Mm -hmm. look at the books that are behind me, the questions that I ask, I always come back to this, like this love for the church. And sometimes my love is a very critical love because I want to see the church do better in the world. I said, sometimes, I mean, most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes. And so I'm a pastor's kid and I grew up in a very like churched family. And yeah, like this one point my life was like going to church four days a week. You know, you got Sunday service and then, you know, youth service in the evening and then Bible study, no, Tuesday prayer, Wednesday Bible study, Saturday choir rehearsal. So season of my life for church was everything. And it continues to be 
in the midst of like trying to like figure out faith for myself. I left my parents' church when I was 19 and kind of like moved around to different places. I even did like a spoken word ministry at some point and like would go and travel and do spoken word, different events and things. And I just found that like, I felt most alive and free in church when I got to like experience different expressions of like what it looked like in different places. And people kept saying to me, like, you need to be grounded in community. You need to be grounded. You got to find your people somewhere. And for a while I took that advice and I was like, I'm going to just become a member of this church. I'm going to stay here. But even still like committing to a denomination, I still found myself in a committing to a local church. I still found myself asking questions about the church universal, the church globally. And, and so I turned that energy into thinking about my denomination and thinking about our theology and, and wanting to climb the ranks as much as I possibly could to influence as many people as I could. Yeah. But I eventually realized like, and in that part of that is coming out of like discovering rest is my vocation that like those goals did not amount to the flourishing that I would want in my life on a personal level and embodied level. So been in that dream and have since kind of like, and I consider like social media to be I mean, it's a very tricky place to like create community and a lot of people like look down on it. And luckily I had community on social media before the pandemic hit the U.S. and like kind of forced us into our homes and all of that. But like I was already like rooting community online before people started to take online ministry seriously. Mm. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, like because people were turning to their phones and their screens And in the midst of 2020, trying to understand racial injustice and make sense of like all of the events that were happening, I was able to just kind of like connect my passion for justice and faith and the church like into that avenue. But yeah, so I think in a lot of ways, like my experience of my faith is evolving in the midst of like asking questions about who I want to center in my work and where I want to be grounded, where I feel most community-wise, where I feel like the most loved, as those questions shift and turn, like I find myself still number one, like I still love Jesus and I still identify as a Christian, Mm -hmm. but like denominational things don't matter to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think in our generation and younger who are like, why does this matter? (laughs) And I'm asking those questions. Like, why do these divisions matter? Like I've studied them and, you know, I know the histories, Mm -hmm. but as we face this, like continually changing world, I find myself like identifying with expressions of faith that are more about like what commitments we are, like what commitments hold us together, like in terms of like our social justice values and the values of like how we want to grow together. And so that's kind of what drives me right now. But that's what drives me with Dear Soft Black Woman and with CUNY in those spaces. Like I'm not asking my guests, um, what denomination are you in? Because that's going to really matter because I need to know what like your creeds and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, just tell me your story. Yeah. Because <laughs> one of the things I've realized, even the people who have denominational faith expressions will often be like, well, you can't just go out there and tell people they should believe this thing. You got to tell them your story because that's how they're going to be convinced about, you know, this. Yeah. And I'm not an evangelist (laughs) (laughs) at all. 
(laughs) but I still believe like in the power of story and the power of like story for helping people come to know like the gospel, the good news that sets you free. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it just looks different now. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I really haven't heard in a long time, someone say, I love church. (laughs) I have not heard that in a really long time. I mean, when I say it, I'm talking about the spiritual community of church that is separated from the institutions that we've created. So yeah. And like, I keep coming back to like, wow, I still love church. I still have this hope for the church and it still lives in me and in these bones. I've tried, I've tried to root it out, but it just keeps growing deeper. So Mm -hmm. yeah. And I love that definition too, because my parents are devoutly Seventh-day Adventist. And like my sister went to Oakwood, which is a Seventh-day Adventist university. And I also did the like, I don't know if we got to four, but it was definitely like three days a week at church. And the like fourth and fifth day, we're hanging out with church people. (laughs) And at that space, that was the most connected I've ever felt to church and even to community kind of, I'm going to say to this day on such a large scale where I just Mm. genuinely like walked into a space where hundreds of people were and felt like Mm. if I was in trouble or if I was bored or anything, I can go to anybody here and I know I'll be taken care of. And that space energetically and spiritually is so beautiful. And I think in a lot of ways that expression, or maybe not the expression, but that the feeling behind that particular expression of community is what I'll speak for myself is what I'm still chasing. (laughs) Mm. And I do think that a lot of people are like seeking that and they seek it in different ways. Sometimes it's religion or Mm. a hobby. It seems like really seems like people who do ultimate Frisbee, like have a similar relationship Mm -hmm. that some folks have to religion. So Shout out to them if they crack the code. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's so true. Yeah. I'm really interested in what's the difference in definition, I guess, from an academic standpoint. So moving forward, I'm using the correct word between like faith and religion. Hmm. It depends on who you ask. And that's probably the most academic answer I could ever give. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, because religion, especially like the study of religion is changing so much, especially because it's hard to conceptualize religion in a world where a lot of Eastern religions wouldn't consider themselves religions, but philosophies. Mm. But the practices might overlap with what the people in the Western world would call religious. And so like there's religious spirituality, like there's so many like overlaps in all of that. And then I think a lot of religion also gets reduced to the study of practices and Mm. like, and how, like, at least like what I'm learning from like a sociological point of view is like lived religion is a very important part of sociology because that's what we can measure and look at for data and analysis. It's much harder to analyze like beliefs in the world. I think beliefs are, they make up the stuff of conversations, like theological conversations and all that, but like 
what we actually live and do is the stuff of live religion. In terms of faith, like, yeah, faith is, oh, I think that you, like, no matter how much you study faith, like you're supposed to find yourself coming back to this, like, what is it? Okay. <laughs> and if you ever find yourself being like, yep, I fully get it. Makes all complete sense. I feel like you've lost it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, think, I think part of what makes it faith is like this, what, I don't know, like holding on to that sense of wonder. Yeah. Mm. And to continue to wonder, like one of the, these like really old quotes from the like early church fathers, like Anselm, he said, theology is faith seeking understanding. And like that quote, yeah, for me, like I come back to it as much as like, I am not a fan of Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cause I don't know, there's just so much going on back there in our history. But that quote makes sense to me. And even as you seek understanding, I think what makes us faithful is being able to like realize that our understanding and our conclusions can never make up for the mysteries and the wonder. And being able to hold a space for what we don't know is what makes us human. I guess keeps us away from our tendencies to like overly reduce things down and gives us this sense of like now that I've understood it I can conquer it Mm -hmm. and I can keep this and I can hold it and now I have power over it but our wonder it humbles us and yeah like every once in a while I find myself like singing in my head like a super evangelical song and then like I tell myself oh let me sing this I don't want to be remembering these songs Mm -hmm. (laughs) but the song that comes to mind right now is like god of wonders (laughs) yeah (laughs) and you know just like yeah god of wonders beyond our galaxy oh yeah and I think about that song number the moments when I would like be in worship and you know like and you feel like this sense of like there's a force in the universe bigger than you and it just brings you to the ground and something about that like i don't know it's still with me even through so much of like what i study i feel it brings me to like it brings me to this place where I, depending on the moment i could use that knowledge to seek power i could use it to belittle others i could use it to like I don't know, to do a lot of things. I could use it to alienate me from community because I could say, well, I know this and you don't. And you clearly don't know what you're doing. There's so much that you could do with that. And one of the like biggest lessons I've learned in seminary is I think it's important to realize that when you are studying the divine, like you're studying something at the end of yourself. <laughs> and it's almost kind of like, it's the difference between being able to fully grasp and hold on to an object in your hand, which is, you know, like that certainty, that knowledge that you feel like you've fully understood and the difference between that and having your hand fully opened with what you want to hold at the tip of your fingers, but knowing you could never really like fully enclose it in your hand and to be satisfied with like, well, at least I am touching it. Mm. And that touch for me, what Myra Rivera calls the touch of transcendence is like where the magic happens. That's probably like the most about <laughs> that song. Somewhere only we know, man, these references. Mm, yes. Come through then. <laughs> I think of that song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Somewhere only we know. 
yeah, something about that feels magical, like this, I don't know, we're on a journey. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty much how I understand faith right now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I like it. <laughs> I think I know which words I want to use when. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really interested in what the academic lens of religion and faith to a degree has done with your relationship to your faith? Hmm. I think I would say that it's definitely transformed it. Hmm. Yeah, definitely has. Yeah, but in a lot of ways, I don't know, I like to describe seminary as like this experience of like a buffet where, especially because I, I go to a seminary that's pretty progressive. So we do have access to learning about a bunch of different things. And in that journey, like first time you go into the buffet, you might think, ooh, everything here looks good. I'm filling my plate as many times as possible and eat everything. And then you get sick because you're like, oh, something didn't sit well with me, but I don't even know what it is because I just consumed everything yep. <laughs> inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the next time you go, you're going to be more discerning because you're going to be like, hmm, I remember I really like this, but I did not like that. And you're going to be more picky about what you choose to eat. But you're also going to be like, I don't have to eat everything today. I could come back. And definitely feel like there was a journey like that for me at the beginning of seminary of like learning and discerning and like trying to figure out what felt good, what did not feel good. And then sometimes being surprised that I go back to my staples and realize like, wow, like I've tried all these other things, but I still really love this part of, you know, what I've always had. And towards the end of this journey now, like, I think that's kind of where I'm, where I am. I'm finding a balance between like embracing elements of my faith that I've always had, but also realizing like now I have a diversified palette of things that I enjoy. So yeah, I think that's kind of like how I'd understand that journey of transformation. Yeah. And what initially drew you to seminary? Yeah. I like to tell people quite simply, it's just was, I would, I did not feel confident that people would listen to me if I didn't have a seminary degree. (laughs) That's the first thing I think for sure. That's like a predominant um, insecurity about feeling like I didn't have enough to like enough credentials. Like my initial plan was like seminary, then PhD. Mm. But I also, I I remember thinking about all the different things I would want to study, but like my brain has always been like wired to theology questions. So I was like, let me just pursue this and then see what happens. Yeah. So how does the academic community around theology converse (laughs) with your embodied experience and perhaps also like the shared experience of the community that you have and are making online? So I guess like one way to think of your question is like, how do I experience community in my school interacting with the work that I do online? I have a very like close circle of friends in seminary that I consider trustworthy mm-hmm. who I talk to about my work. And then beyond that, I honestly navigate school trying to keep as much of a low profile as possible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of that has to do with like having experienced college as, you know, like, bluntly like the magical negro like the girl who everybody went to to try to understand racism who 
was doing the most, had all of the jobs Mm -hmm. (laughs) and still had to be academically excellent. And I just didn't want to do that in seminary. And all of the right energy was there to make me that person again. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And so for me, cultivating a group of friends over the course of the years that I like trusted and friends who see me as just Rose and like who's silly. Sometimes we can't stand her jokes. And (laughs) sometimes we have to repeatedly text her to come hang out with us. Like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I need those people in my life. And other than that, there's not much overlap with like, at least in in the past couple semesters, there hasn't been that much overlap with the work I do online and my education. Mm -hmm. And so that means that I do a lot more reading outside of my school reading. Yeah. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That segues so beautifully into the question of needing versus belonging. Mm -hmm. In mentioning that you were in your undergraduate experience, the person that everyone came to for X, Y, Z. I think that's a common experience for Black woman identifying people. And I personally have been doing a lot of work around different expressions inside of love. (laughs) Mm. And I read this somewhere recently around the idea of someone wrote, I think it was a tweet, which is the internet's literature, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) This woman said, I'm tired of being needed. Like that's different from being appreciated, from having space held. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think what you're mentioning is so similar. And it's awesome that you saw that this could happen again. And you said, no, (laughs) no, no, no. I guess I'm basically just asking your take on this idea of being needed versus like belonging in, I keep thinking of it in partnership, but it's more than that. It's like, all of your interactions, the difference between being the person that like essentially a tool Mm -hmm. and it's like one dimensional too. I have been in a lot of situations in which it occurs to me that folks don't view me as a person that also has feelings. Mm -hmm. And Bell Hooks actually wrote in The Will to Change, which is, is it Men, Masculinity and Love? is the like subtitle of that. So yeah, there's a whole passage around how she kept asking for her father or her lovers to express emotions. And she just kept trying and trying to pull it out of them. But then when a partner would express some emotion, she would start crying. (laughs) She would start crying and she would like feel completely overwhelmed by this person expressing the need for support, the need for help. And that resonated so deeply with me because I'm that partner. I have been in that situation several times where Mm. I express in quotes weakness or vulnerability. Let's use that. Mm -hmm. I express vulnerability to the community and they go, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. Or they literally cry and now I'm consoling them. Right. So What has been your experience, especially as you're moving out of that and you're more cultivating this softness as opposed to strength or the strong Black woman trope? 
what has been your experience with determining kind of, okay, where's this boundary? Yeah. Um, One of the things I'm learning, especially as like more Black women are talking about softness and whether that's on my podcast or on their own platforms, Mm -hmm. is that like for us and like whether this is viewed like through the cynical lens of like we can't trust anyone else or whatever, I'm setting that conversation aside for another day. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of us Black women, in order to have the space to be soft, it has to be amongst other Black women committed to the same journey. And Dr. Shanika Walker-Barnes talks about that in her book, Too Heavy a Yoke, like creating these, like what she called like co-journer spaces where you're journeying alongside other Black women to ask each other questions and hold each other accountable because we really truly are often the only ones who can hold space for one another to completely fall apart if we need to. Mm-hmm. And sadly, like the work of having that safety and community elsewhere requires a full complete dismantling of the systems of oppression in society so we sometimes can't wait for that right right, <laughs> we right. don't have time <laughs> <laughs> y'all work yourselves out okay mm-hmm. <laughs> meanwhile yeah the expression of like being needed versus like being wanted like that's been a dynamic yes. my entire life yes. and as I began to unpack that in these last few years like I told myself, like, what if I allowed myself to seek belonging as like, what if I made that a goal? Like I had been working so hard to become a kind of person who people needed to become the most skilled, to become the best listener, to, you know, just to do as much as possible to create space for others that Mm -hmm. didn't really include making space for me. And now I'm asking, like, not that I'm not doing those things anymore, but I've shifted to to like belonging as like a very important part of what I seek in the world to be happy, to be whole. And then from there, I found like I can do all the other things from a space of like truly like being nourished and full and feeling whole in the world. And so it's sad. And this is a good part. The good part is like, I've cultivated the communities I need to feel safe and to feel soft. I know the people who will check on me who will make that space. I don't have to struggle anymore, like in that way, in that capacity. Mm-hmm. And then I do know that the people I do work with, when I need to take a break, they still see me as valuable. I think what is sad is that like in the midst of that, that means there's like maybe the 75% of the people that were in my life before I made this journey are no longer in my life mm-hmm. because sadly they did not know how to hold that space for me. Or they're in my life in a different capacity. Like I don't give them access to those parts of my life anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's been the hard part of the journey when I think back and reflect on it. But now I'd rather have like a smaller number of people who truly get me than to have like the mass group of people that I used to have Mm -hmm. who were always looking to me to, to like when they needed me, when they needed my voice and when they needed guidance or when they wanted to use my content, you know, all of that stuff, like they're no longer on the focus of my life, no longer drawing on them to satisfy this like sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Could you share maybe like one tip around having that conversation with people? Presumably not everybody. So you said 75% of people like are kind of no longer in your life and not in the same capacity. But did you offer that to all of these people or a number of these people? Like, did you try to have a conversation around, I have to shift my boundaries 
or were you just sort of like, this is beyond repair? And I'm sure it's like the spectrum ranges the spectrum, but if you were speaking to someone, if you were like trying to have that conversation and see if you can carry them with you forward, if you could just offer, I don't know how you went about that or like a, yeah. Yeah. I would love to be able to answer this much more fully <laughs> later on in life. Yeah. I do think the pandemic, like oh. being separated from folks was like, you know, it gave me time to reflect. And in that reflecting space, like for a lot of reasons, like coming out of a lot of the restrictions, coming back to school in person, all that stuff changed the dynamic of all relationships. Everyone, like, it felt like starting from scratch with so many different people. And so in that space, it was kind of like a reboot, <laughs> like where you kind of like are just, you know, you have this chance to reboot the series and mm-hmm. let go of some of the side characters without having to explain to anybody why yeah. they were written out of the show. <laughs> You're right about that. And so in some ways, like that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, like one of my earlier situations of leaving like a particular community it just kind of was like a natural like I had to move on move out and kind of like let go in that way and then like in reevaluating, like do I stay in touch in particular ways I've just chosen not to so I really haven't had like a hard conversation about boundaries in that sense yet most of the time it's just like hey just so you know I no longer do this type of work here's the work that I am doing Blah, 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 blah. Good to hear from you. Mm-hmm. You want to get in touch about this stuff? Yeah. So most of like the boundary stuff I navigate is more on like the professional level and like more oh. of like through the work that I want to do publicly versus like interpersonally because it's really like I really do to get to friendship with a lot of people. Like I go mm-hmm. through so many layers. <laughs> like takes a really long time. So I've had a close friendship that I've had to have oh. that conversation with. I see. I see. Mm-hmm. I did a little tour. I was walking around. I was like, hey, I'm hurting. <laughs> mm. Can you do this moving forward? And some people said quite immediately, no, mm. not with their words. People refuse to say no to me, which is so rude. Just don't waste my <laughs> time. No. Yes. <laughs> but their actions it. said immediately, absolutely not. And mm-hmm. other people tried, but I still had to make kind of the judgment call that like, "Mm, you trying your best. I appreciate the effort and it's not worth my time still, which is hard. Mm, But anyways, yeah, I was definitely thinking about it as like an interpersonal thing, but I see that makes sense. All right. Cacao. Now it's time for the seedling round where short questions lead to tasty answers. (laughs) I love it. Thank you. What is your current favorite form of rest? Right now it's like those sheet face masks. Mm. I love those. Mm-hmm. Like I will collect them like Pokemon cards. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and every time I try a new one that I love, I'm like, oh my gosh, my skin feels luxurious. I love just like, yeah. Right now it's like, it's definitely skincare. I have a jade roller. Sometimes like I'll just be writing a paper and I'm like one hand typing, one hand jade rolling. <laughs> Oh, wow. I love that so much. That is a mood. (laughs) Fill in the blank. Reciprocity is? Relationship. Nice. How do you measure time? Between meals. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. My stomach tells me what time it is. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. <laughs> Cacao, that ends the seedling round. So I love to end on this. What is the question of the week? Question of the week for me. I guess the question is, how many episodes of Smallville will I watch this week? (laughs) (laughs) That's probably not the one you're waiting for, but. (laughs) No, I love it. Perfect question. Perfect. Wow. (sighs) Stay tuned to hear the answer. Oh, man. Thank you so much, Rose. I really appreciated this. This was so rich, I feel like. Where can people connect with you. Also any general plugs. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram. My handle is Rose J Percy. And I so have a Twitter for the podcast. It's dear SBW. Uh And if you're interested in CUNY work, so the CUNY handle on IG is Q-U-N-I underscore community. And yeah, so the podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Music, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts. And I think, you know, wherever podcasts are streamed. And that's about it for my plugs. Yes. Nice. Yeah, that's about it for the episode as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank, thank you, you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs>